Moving into our, our teaching time today, I am really excited. As you know, uh, last week, this week, and next week, we're doing kind of a short sermon series called Partners in the Gospel. And earlier this year, we as an elder team said, hey, what would it look like for us to get uh, our ministry partners, the church plants that we're currently supporting, uh, not just financially, but with prayer and relationship? And, and, and what would it look like for us to get those church planters to come in August and not only give us a little bit of an update about how the church plant is going for them, but also to just open God's word and teach us, uh, give myself, the other pastors, a little bit of a break, give us a chance to learn and hear from God's word from some other voices. And so uh, last week we had Pastor Miles Rohde come from uh, the Far East in Spokane, and he came and did a great job teaching uh, us last week. And then this week I'm really excited to welcome my friend, Pastor Matt Wallace, all the way from sunny Southern California. And I actually think we do have him to thank for bringing the weather with him. So thank you for that, bro. Uh, I put him on the spot uh, in the first service, so the, it's already been taken care of. But uh, I asked him if he remembered the first time we met, and he didn't. And I was deeply hurt, and so we have to pray together after that. But I remember the first time we met, uh, Pastor Matt and I, we were both in California for a conference. It was called the Resurgence Conference in, in 2012. And, and Matt was at the front door just handing out programs. And I thought, who is this really smiley, kind of hippie-looking dude I've never met before? And so I went up and shook hands. We ended up having a conversation. We only talked for like, I think, 45 minutes or something that first time. Had a, a great chat while we were waiting for people to come in. And uh, another point of connection, what's interesting, I didn't even realize this until later. So both Matt and our pastor Shane went through a pastoral training program together about seven years ago called Retrain. They were actually in the same group, the same cohort together seven years ago. So Pastor Shane and Matt go back even further than, than Matt and I do. And so uh, it's a privilege to call him a friend. It's a privilege to call him a brother in Christ. And it's a privilege to call him uh, a partner in the gospel. And so I invite you to come up and please welcome Pastor Matt Wallace from Orange County. All right. Well, thank you for the welcome. I'm going to have you guys turn to Mark chapter 8. And it's my understanding that you walked through the gospel of Mark last year as Sound City was... Uh, Beginning, And so I am going to consider this maybe some review. We're in a lecture hall, right? So we might as well just consider you guys can get out your old notes. We'll do some review and a test later. But go to Mark 8. I'm going to read through this passage as I think is your custom um, as you get started in a, in a sermon. And so let me do that and pray. And then I'll introduce uh, myself a little bit more in, our, in my family. I'm going to begin Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others still one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the glorified one. All glory, all honor, all power belong to you. And we thank you, Father, that you, in your grace and mercy, have revealed yourself to us, that we can open up the Bible, we can read words written by men, but inspired by your Spirit. And we would pray now, Father, that you, through your Spirit, would open up our minds and our hearts to your truth, that we could see it in faith, receive it in faith, that it would benefit us that for those who are, are believers, followers of Jesus, you would use this time to grow us in our faith, to build us up in our faith, to strengthen us in our faith. And I pray, Father, for those who do not know Jesus, who are in this room, that your spirit today would bring conviction. And through your son, Jesus, you might reconcile them to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ, your son, for them on the cross. And we just ask you now to lead this time, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am delighted to be here and uh, consider it an honor to be counted amongst the Sound City partners in the gospel. I can distinguish myself very easily from Pastor Miles and Pastor Justin, and it has nothing to do with me being a hippie. I'm honestly not sure uh, where Pastor Aaron got that. I don't, I, he, besides him, nobody else has ever compared me to a hippie, but uh, I guess I'll take it. Maybe when you live in Southern California, that uh, just comes with the territory. Uh, but I, I do not have the military background or experience of Pastor Miles. I have listened to him share stories for hours on end about about the things uh, that he has done and the types of training that he has done with the survival schools. And, and maybe uh, the best I've got is, is my, my wife and I have five kids. I mean, if we've survived that, then maybe, uh, maybe I could maybe you know, join Pastor Miles' group. I, I also do not have the ability that Pastor Justin does to grow a beard. And I'm not sure if he'll have one next week or not when you meet Pastor Justin, but I, I can't compete with him there, um, nor can I compete with his sense of humor. I think Pastor Justin is one of the funnier guys I've been around. So I'm kind of in the middle, just like I am on the calendar this year, kind of right in the middle between Pastor Miles and Pastor Justin. But as you see on the screen, this is my family. My wife, Meg, and I have been married for 14 years, and we have uh, the, the, uh, the privilege, the gift of raising uh, these five beautiful kiddos. Uh, we were told at one time in our life, in our, in our marriage, that we would never have kids of our own. And, uh, and that doctor hopefully is out of practice at this point because um, God in his grace has proven him uh, terribly wrong. Uh, but we have uh, our oldest is Kate my daughter, she's 10. She's going to be going into fifth grade, and she loves to dance. She is a, a ballerina and a quite graceful one. We love watching her. Uh, next 
to her, not in the picture, but I guess on the far left for you is Kai. He's my oldest son, and Kai will be going into third grade. He is eight, and then next to him in order, but the right side of the picture is Corbin. Corbin is seven, going into second grade, and Corbin is with me. He came to hang with dad and keep me out of trouble this weekend, and so we've been enjoying Seattle and this beautiful weather that you guys are enjoying right now. And then our final two, uh, Cannon is five. He'll be going into kindergarten, so that's four in school this fall, uh, which I'm really not convinced yet is a blessing uh, because obviously four kids in school means there's four sets of homework and four teachers to keep track of. And I see some nodding heads who know what I'm talking about. And then our last one, Crew, he is our youngest. He is three years old, and he is um, all personality. I mean, the kid is just a, a, a joy to be around. So those are our five kids. We had five kids. In, in six and a half years. I'm not recommending it, uh, but that's kind of how it went with us. When, when you're told you won't have kids, you just kind of get to this point where you're like, all right, God, we'll take whatever you give us. And then you get to this point where you're like, okay, seriously, God, you can stop. And uh, I, I think that may be where we're at is, uh, is we may be ready now uh, to stop. But that's my family. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about our story because I, I, I know that's one of the reasons we're doing this Partners in the Gospel series is for us to get to know you and you to get to know us, but it also connects with this passage that we've read in Mark. And, and uh, Pastor Aaron alluded to uh, um, he and I's relationship as well as uh, Shane, Pastor Shane's and, and some of these others uh, going back to days with Mars Hill Church. Some of you share those days with us, and some of you I know were never a part of that, and so I think this will kind of help you know a little bit about our story uh, in, in that regard. But my wife and I, we moved to Southern California about four years ago. In fact, we're coming up on exactly four years ago. And we, we moved out there to be a part of Marcel Orange County. And, and I would have to tell you, in our time there, we really got to witness a miracle. And I'm, I'm not using hyperbole. We got to be a part of a congregation that really knew nothing but chaos and instability and transition, and yet that church congregation weathered a, a tumultuous season together. I mean, it really was a miracle. In 20 months, this church met in seven different venues in five different cities, and despite that, there were still around 150, 200 people that just persevered through all of that. This church congregation had seen all of the original staff and elders depart. And again, despite that, God's grace just sustained and they persevered together. This church congregation weathered, as some of you know, just the tumultuous events around the demise and end of Mars Hill Church. And yet, despite that, 150, 200 people learned to love one another well. It was a sweet community of people. It really was a miracle that a church still existed at all. And I know full well that all glory, all honor goes to a good father and his grace to just sustain us in the midst of all of that. And, and I, I, I know there's not any credit that I can take, yet I did consider it a privilege to lead this church community through those hardships together. But I have to be honest with you. While we saw that miracle taking place among us in our church community, I failed to lead my family as Jesus both calls and empowers me to lead my family. I was rushed. I was busy. I was 
irritable. I was angry. I was impatient. What God had given, and you saw on the screen, as an absolute gift and blessing, I grew to handle as an inconvenient burden. And so at this point in time, some of you will remember this, for those of you who were not a part of it, there were 13 churches that remained. 12 of them determined to go forward independently in some form or fashion, just as you have here at Sound City Bible Church. So what happened to that one? The outlier, well, that's, that's me. I was convicted to stop. Not because there wasn't a church there. I've already told you the miracle of that story. I was convicted to stop because I had neglected to cultivate my own heart and my own home. And of all the people that I walked through that time with, my wife was the hardest to convince. I mean, we had gone through so much to get to this point. I'm sure you could understand her frustration with me coming and saying, I really believe the Holy Spirit is saying we need to stop. I mean, what? It just didn't even register with her. And so we went on this date night. I'll I'll call it that. It really wasn't much of a date, if I'm honest with you. And I remember the conversation starting as we were um, on a rooftop patio overlooking Laguna Beach. I mean, it sounds amazing and romantic, but instead she graciously um, offered to hear me out and yet said, I cannot, I, I will not agree with you on this decision. And so we began to reminisce together and we talked through just what the preceding years to this moment of decision had looked like. How God had blessed us of having two children and now we had five children in our family and and, and the chaos that went along with that, but it was just grace upon grace for us. And we talked about all the, the stories, the people, the lives that we got to see transformed. And, and I mean, they're, they're just too numerous to count. And, and again, just grace upon grace. And yet in the midst of all of that, there was this nagging conviction that we shared that life could not continue in a, any sustainable fashion the way that we were living it. That it was just a matter of time before I or our family crashed. There was this nagging conviction that I was sprinting by days that we as a family would never get back. And the Holy Spirit finally had my attention. And in that moment, as we kind of wept together on this rooftop patio, the Holy Spirit brought my wife and I together in one mind. And we knew as difficult and hard as this decision was going to be, that he was telling us to stop. And so we grieved the closing of doors. We grieved the loss of family. If, if I'm just speaking honestly with you, in the moment, the direction of God in our lives felt so punitive. And yet I can say unequivocally now in hindsight that God was faithful and gracious to a broken man in a bruised family. We took the beginning of 2015 as somewhat of a sabbatical, just an intentional time to focus together, to process together, to seek counseling together, to be restored and renewed and refreshed together. And, and God 
just in a tangible way, was so faithful in his care toward us in that time. We, we had a local church family that just opened up their arms, opened up their lives, their doors to us. And we are forever indebted to Pastor Jeff Luddington and Generations Church, our sending church now. And there was another local community that provided and arranged for us some counseling during that time. And so after about four to five months, we were back on our knees and we were praying with just new convictions around our, our lives as a family. What, what is it that God had for us? And during this time, as the people around us and the elders around us were praying with us, God birthed in our hearts the call, the desire, the dream to plant a church in Orange, California. Now, uh, I have said it many times. I have never in my life as a believer, and never have we as a married couple or as a family done anything like this from the standpoint of faith. I mean, this is a leap of faith unprecedented in our lives. It, it, it uh, has stretched us and challenged us in ways I have never been stretched and challenged. Uh, to give you an example, um, we, we uh, were, this is about last summer as July was coming to a close and the, um, we had kind of confirmed in our hearts this was God's call. The elders of the church had confirmed over us this was God's plan and direction for us and so we began to share and pray and, and, and look ahead. And we decided to take it kind of in two steps. We thought, okay, let's just see if we, God would provide for us funds from August to December just to get us to the end of the year. We can begin to do some core community work. We can, we can then focus on fundraising for 2016. And as July came to a close, we had 5% of what we needed through the rest of the year, which for if any of you math people in the room would know, right, that's, that doesn't cover it. Like that's not enough to get us through the rest of the year. I mean, we were anxious. We were praying. We just did not know, God, you're, you're, if you're calling us to this, you've got to show up for us to do this. And not only did God miraculously just provide the beginning of August for what we needed that month, but by mid-September, six weeks later, we had everything we needed through the rest of the year. I mean, we were, we were just beside ourselves. Like, this, this is amazing to watch the work of God as he provides for this call in our lives. And so now we turned our focus and we're fully looking ahead towards 2016 and we're gonna fundraise for a church plant. And, and again, just things we'd never done in our lives before. And we begin this process and come the beginning of November, we're in this familiar spot again. We've got 5% of what we need for 2016, and we're just a couple months away. And about six weeks later, in fact, I want to say it was December, right, right around December 21st, I got a phone call from a pastor saying, hey, our elders have been praying, and we as a church community, we want to partner with you. Uh, we want to jump in and be a part of this church plant. And I hung up the phone, and I turned to Meg, and I said, I, I don't understand it. But that call just pushes us over everything that we need for 2016. And I would imagine you would find it of interest that that phone call was from Pastor Aaron Gray and Sound City Bible Church. We are so grateful 
for your partnership in the gospel with us. You guys have been a part of this story from the very onset, and so we jumped in, and this leap of faith continues. It doesn't really stop. You know, the, the one week after the other, one month after the other, God continues to stretch us. And In fact, this Sunday, a year ago, a handful of people gathered in our house, and we began to pray about planting a church in Orange. And last Sunday... Uh, we met for the first time in a public space. We've been in a back patio since January. But last Sunday, we met for the first time in this public space in Old Town Orange, just two blocks south of kind of the bullseye of our target area with 34 adults and 15 kids. And God just continues to amaze us. But as, yeah, we can celebrate the grace of God. We have celebrated the grace of God. And as that walk of faith continues, as you might imagine, so do hardships. So do suffering continue. We may live near Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, but that's not reality day in and day out for us, just as I'm sure it's not reality day in and day out for you. Um, Just the last few months alone, We've had a car broken into with a wallet and an identity stolen. We uh, have had a slab leak in our house. I now know what that is and have had to have that fixed. And then shortly thereafter, we found some mold in our house, and that was a massive pain and and inconvenience. And my wife, uh, the beginning of this summer, had a surgery to remove a couple spots that were potentially cancerous. And then we had to just endure that wait for results, you know, what's it going to be? And and by God's grace, uh, it was it's, it was clear, and yet we still just had to weigh, carry the weight of that time. Um, you know, I found out just uh, last week that one of our cars, which runs fine, by the way, but yet uh, California, the regulated state that it is, I cannot get this car to pass the emissions test, though it runs fine, without doing repairs that would exceed the value of the car itself. It just doesn't make any sense to me, right? But yet that that's kind of been the last few months, the, the suffering, the hardships, they continue. And I don't share any of that with you because I think that it's unique for me or our family as, as uh, we are in the throes of church planning. I share those things with you because my guess is, as you walk in faith after Jesus, you also experience as a reality in your lives suffering and hardship. And, and what do we do about that, right? Because sometimes about the only way that we can cope is to convince ourselves it's not supposed to look like this. This, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And, and even if we're able to convince ourselves that that is true, our expectations remain unmet, don't they? Our expectations are left unrealized. So what do we do about this? What do we do about these expectations of of life without hardship and pain and suffering? Do Do we just abandon these expectations? Do we abandon our faith? Do we harden and callous our hearts? Do we give up or give in? Before we go that route, I I think it's worth asking the question, what what does Jesus do with these expectations? Does he have anything to say to us? 
And that's why I want you to go back to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And I'm going to read this first section one more time. And we're going to see, at least initially, that one of the things that Jesus does is he raises our expectations. It says in verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now this is a pivotal, climactic moment in the gospel of Mark. Mark has constructed the narrative of his gospel in such a way that this really acts as the center point, the turning point of his gospel narrative. And and we could certainly look and just begin to dig into this immediate context, but rather than do that, I I would want to bring to your mind how this passage plays such a a climactic and pivotal role in Mark's gospel. Because what Mark has done is he has told us as readers, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, he has told us who Jesus is. The very opening verse is the gospel of Mark, I'm sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He tells us right off the bat, Jesus is the Son of God. And from there, he begins to tell us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and how God prepares the way for Jesus with John the Baptist. And then God himself speaks from heaven and declares, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. And all of that, we as readers are privy to because it's in the prologue. But from Mark chapter 1 verse 15 until this very moment in Mark chapter 8 verse 29, nobody around Jesus knows yet how to answer that question, who is Jesus? And we watch them all just wrestle and struggle and stumble over this question. The crowds cannot figure this out. The established leaders are, 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 they're frustrated. They're in conflict with Jesus over this. They, they don't know who this guy is. Jesus' own family does not realize who Jesus is. They think that he's lost his mind. And, and the disciples, they give voice to this very question in chapter 4 after watching Jesus stand in a boat and command the wind and the rain. They say, who is this? that even the seas and the wind would obey him. I mean, everybody is struggling and stumbling over this question, who is Jesus, until this very moment in Mark's gospel, as Jesus poses the question to his disciples, and Peter, speaking for the disciples, answers, you're the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He must be the Christ. He's they're putting this together. And, and just imagine this moment. Imagine the excitement, the electricity, the anticipation that would have been in the air around the disciples as Jesus makes his confession. Just the, the smiles that would have begun to form on the faces of the disciples as they look at Peter and look at Jesus and look back to Peter like, wait, what? He's, he's the Messiah? This is him? This is 
the one we've been waiting for? This, this is the one our fathers and, and, and their fathers and their fathers long to see this day. He's here. This is him. Uh, the awe, the wonder of this moment. But whatever euphoria this moment provided, it proves fleeting. Because immediately after Peter's confession and all of the expectations that would have risen with this announcement that Jesus is the Christ, immediately the tone of Jesus turns morbid and serious. And what Jesus has to say next would have completely shattered the expectations that the disciples associated with the Christ. Let's read it together. Verse 30, it says, and he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, no parables here. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I can only imagine the shock of this moment for Peter and the disciples. This, this climax, right? This, this, this turning point, this, this confession, this, just, just the beginning of, of realizing and grasping who Jesus truly is and yet it's followed with these clear, plain words from Jesus, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed before rising three days later. And I would imagine at this point, that last phrase is completely lost in the disciples, right? They're not even beginning to think through what resurrection might mean. They're trying to come to grips with these incoherent words of suffering, rejection, death. What? Like, how do we make sense of this? We didn't, we didn't see this coming. We weren't prepared for this. And Jesus, uh, he's going to rebuke Peter. And I, I get it, guys. Like, Peter's an easy target, isn't he? Right? I mean, this isn't the first time, and it won't be the last time. And we can certainly have a chuckle at, at, at Peter's expense that he would have the audacity to pull Jesus aside and, and teach Jesus a thing or two, right? I mean, I, I, get, I get that Peter makes a fool of himself on multiple occasions. But, you know, if we pause for a second, I think we could probably muster some sympathy towards him. Because while Peter's offense with Jesus is indefensible, it's understandable at this point in Mark's narrative. How, how else was he supposed to interpret the works and words of Jesus? How else? 
I mean, up to this point, we have seen Jesus free those oppressed by demonic forces. We have seen Jesus give sight to those who are blind, to give hearing to those who are deaf. We've seen Jesus even take those who are dead and bring them back to life. This, this was the end of oppression. This was the end of disease. This, this was the end of physical limitation. And, and this was the end of pain. What could Jesus possibly mean? That the Son of Man must suffer many things. We'd seen Jesus touch the untouchable. We'd seen Jesus feed multitudes. We, we've seen Jesus come alongside those who were outcast and distant from the society and the community around them. We had seen Jesus take on the religious leaders that oppressed the people with their morality and their law. This, this was the end of shame. This was the end of hunger. This, this was supposed to be the end of strife and marginalization. What could Jesus possibly mean? The Son of Man is going to be rejected. What does he mean by these things? This was the dawn of a new day, a new era. Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God. He is the promised one, the eternal king of God's kingdom, and he's here. What could he possibly mean? He's going to be killed. Maybe we could muster some sympathy for Peter, right? Maybe we could be a little more understanding. He, he can't wrap his mind around these things. It shatters every expectation he had for the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one of God. Peter doesn't just give voice to the disciples. He gives voice to us all. Maybe you're there. I don't understand this. I, I can't make sense of this. I, I can't wrap my mind around this. I, I don't have time for this. What is going on? Why do I have to endure this? Didn't, didn't Jesus come to remove pain? Didn't he come to remove hardship? Didn't he come to take away suffering? Didn't he? Did, didn't he come to eliminate grief and sorrow? Right? Right? Those, those questions can just echo and linger while the pain persists and the hardships increase and, and suffering seemingly takes up residence in our lives. Here's the thing about this passage that I don't want you to miss. L listen to me on this one. You can be amused by Jesus. You can be amazed with Jesus. You can be excited about Jesus. You can say and confess along with Peter the truth of Jesus and none of those things, none of them will spare you or I from disappointment in 
Jesus. And he knows this as he turns and he sees all of the disciples waiting to see his response to Peter's rebuke. Jesus, Jesus knows this and, and it's clear as he rebukes Peter it's abundantly clear in verse 33 that our devotion, the purity of our devotion to Jesus is far more valuable to him than the expectations we place upon him. I'll say it another way. This is a quotation up on the screen from Sam Storm. Some of you will recognize that name. I know he is a man who played a, uh, an instrumental role in Pastor Aaron's life. An author, a pastor... And he said this, if your belief, your joy, your treasuring of Jesus is not rooted in biblical propositions, biblical truths about him, then it, your joy, your treasuring, your belief in Jesus, then it may be little more than a transient infatuation that leads to your eternal condemnation. You see, the purity of our devotion to Jesus is far more valuable than the self-preserving, self-serving, self-comforting expectations that we place on him. And Jesus knows this. And he cares for his disciples. He's concerned for his disciples. He calls his disciples. And I want you to see that as we read on beginning in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him. With his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What, what could a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, and that this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. You know, of all of the difficult words that we could focus on in those verses, you know, the most difficult part for me is just that first phrase. And he called the crowds. Why did Jesus have to call the crowds? Right? Why, why did Mark have to include in this section of his gospel that Jesus called the crowds? I mean, I mean, maybe if this was just a pep talk for the 12 disciples, then maybe we could dodge this bullet, right? But he had to call the crowds. I mean, if he didn't do that, then, then maybe, just maybe, we could develop a theology of comfort, of prosperity, of, of autonomy, 
maybe, just maybe Jesus wouldn't confront us or challenge us or call us to repentance. Maybe, maybe Jesus would affirm us in, in our misguided desires, in our, in our sexual perversions, in our social aspirations. Maybe, maybe we could follow Jesus at our convenience without suffering and without hardship. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus would offer glory to us without a cross. But he calls the crowds along with his disciples, doesn't he? And he says, if anyone, and he throws that net as broad as it can go to include you and I. And he doesn't just confront us here or call us here or even correct us here. I I don't want you and I to miss that Jesus, he cares for us in these words, that ultimately what Jesus is offering in these words is him, himself, his very life for us. And as he beckons us to follow him on a path of suffering and hardship, there are some things that we learn here that we could not learn any other way. And I, I want to look at three of those together, and, and this is where we will end our time together today. I want to look with you at the hope of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, and the love of Jesus that through suffering we experience, we know, we learn together. So let's start with the hope of Jesus. Follow me on this one, if you will, because oftentimes I think we, we skip this or we neglect this truth, but there is an aspect of Jesus being here with us, Jesus walking this road before us that restores our humanity to us. Jesus personifies humanity as God intended. And what I mean by that is, is if you're familiar with the gospel story from Genesis to Revelation, the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, you'll know that you can sum up the narrative of all of the Bible in four words, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And if this is unfamiliar to you, then, then what we're talking about is, is God, the God, the God of all creation, God Almighty, okay, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in community together. They create the world as we know it. They make it fitting for us as humans as we know it. And then God bestows it to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve get to live in the presence of God, in the place that God created for them, under the good, gracious authority of God as he provides for them and protects them. And yet, they would opt to trade all of that, to doubt his goodness and grace and care, to disobey his word, to, to rebel against his authority, and that's what we call the fall. And all of us share in the ramifications of that moment in human history. And when Jesus comes along, Jesus gives us this glimpse, this picture, this understanding of humanity as God intended it to be. 
Jesus lives his life walking with the Father. Jesus lives his life before others and for others in obedience to the Father, to the glory of the Father. Jesus is able to touch those who are unclean, to associate, as we've said, with those who are outcast. Jesus sees with porn-free eyes the women around him, whether a woman of the street or a woman of means. Jesus commends the faith of a Roman commander, the oppressor, And he does this not for some advantage of his own manipulating this man, nor to seek the demise of this enemy. Jesus esteems the sacrifice of a widow who gives all that she has in honor to God rather than conspire to exploit this woman. Jesus deals with all impartially. He speaks the truth boldly. He consistently exposes injustice. He consistently alleviates suffering while patiently enduring his own. In all of this, Jesus restores humanity to us. He restores humanity to us. He he was here. He is here. He is with us. All that you and I would consider ordinary and mundane and common, Jesus himself renews for us. Our ordinary days, our ordinary limitations, our ordinary struggles, they're familiar to Jesus. Our, Our mundane Work, our mundane routines, our mundane conflicts. He understands these things. He empathizes with us in the midst of these things. All that is commonplace to you and I, all of our common insecurities and fears, all of our common sufferings, Jesus has borne those things, carried those things, endured those things. Jesus restores humanity to us. I I want you to be mindful of this truth, this hope that Jesus brings us as you take communion today. For those of you that are believers, I I understand that soon you will be responding to the word spoken and proclaimed and and you'll receive this cup with with, with bread and, and you may dip that bread into the cup. And I want you to recall this truth to mind that the grain made into bread, the fruit of the vine made into wine, that, that Jesus himself walked the very earth from which these things grew. He's been here. He is here. He is with us. He knows the toil and the sweat and the hardship. He took upon himself our very flesh, our very blood, And upon the cross, that body was broken, that blood was shed, and in all of this, he restores humanity to us. In the midst of suffering, 
He lifts our head. He encourages our heart. He gives us hope. But it's not just the hope of Jesus that we know through suffering. We also know the redemption of Jesus. I recently was on a phone call with uh, a counselor, and this counselor was actually in Ohio, and, and that's uh, another issue altogether. You can pray for our church plant, Cross and Crown, but you could also pray that God would provide in Orange County some solid, gospel-centered, biblically-based counseling. We, we just, we unfortunately do not have much, if any, of that. And so I'm on the phone with this gentleman, he lives in Ohio, and I'm vetting him for a couple in our own community who is working through, wrestling through the restoration of their marriage after the confession of adultery. And I wanted to get to know him and his background, and we were discussing his training and his method of counseling, and in the process, we, we obviously got onto the topic of how the gospel brings transformation to us. And as we ended this time, he, he made a statement that I thought was so profound. It stuck with me, and I want to share it with you. And, and it's in reference to this story out of the Gospel of John. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. John chapter 4, the story is the woman at the well. Some of you will be familiar with that. But basically, Jesus, in the middle of the day, is near a well, and this woman comes to draw water, and this woman is, is a promiscuous woman, an adulterous woman, a, a morally inferior, failed woman, and in fact, the, her being at the well in the middle of the day just kind of serves to demonstrate for us the isolation that she felt from the community around her. Everyone else had come and gone. And she comes alone and she encounters Jesus and they begin this conversation around drawing a drink of water from the well that leads to this conversation about living water and Jesus talking about how you can drink and never thirst again. It just it, it, it just springs up to overflowing. And, and that's the woman at the well. And as he referenced this story, here's what he said, this counselor. He said, whatever brings us to the well to drink the living water, so be it. We don't celebrate the sin or the suffering, but we can celebrate the one it leads us to. How powerful is that? How profound is that? That's the redemption of Jesus Christ that he's speaking of. I referenced the story earlier, right? The gospel story, the gospel narrative, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. But what you and I have to reconcile is that that's not the story, that's every story. All redemption is preceded by a fall. And so it's your story as much as it is the gospel story. And if you don't know the redemption of Jesus Christ, then it can be your story as you realize that in the very moment of your ruin, he redeems us. So we know in the midst of hardship, pain, suffering, shame, the hope of Jesus. We know the redemption of Jesus. And lastly, we know the love of Jesus. As 
Jesus calls his disciples in this passage, he, he talks of taking up the cross. And what does he mean by that? And I want to consider it in light of what the place of the cross was for Jesus. The place of the cross for Jesus was a place where he poured out himself in a garden before the Father, pleading with the Father to take this away from him? Is there any other way? Is there any way this can be removed? Do I have to endure this? Do I have to suffer these things? The place of the cross, it's where Jesus, while hanging from the cross, suffocating, he gets enough air into his lungs to cry out to the Father, why, why, Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these moments in Jesus' life, whether you've ever labeled them this way or not, can be easily captured in a word. He's lamenting. These are laments. And in lamenting, lamentation, it's a a biblical language. It's something that that God himself gives to us as his people. There's, There's a book, actually, in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar, entitled Lamentations, right? We skip over that. I mean, you know, who wants to begin their mornings there? Yet it's a lost language for us, isn't it? I came across a book in this last couple of years that if you're a reader, I would, I would, I would beg you to go and get. It's a gem of a book called Sacred Sorrow by a man named Michael Card. And he points out in the middle of every lament, at the heart of every lament are two questions. And the first one is this, God, you promised your presence. Why are you absent from me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And the second question is around God's loving kindness. You promised to love me. Why are you allowing this? Why must I endure this? Just as in Jesus' life, In our lives, every lament springs from those two questions around the presence and the love of God. And what we have in this passage is first the permission to plead with the Father, to cry out to the Father. We also have the assurance that his presence is with us and for us. Do you see that here? In the midst of suffering and hardship and pain, do you not see that Jesus himself has preceded us here? He's near to us here. He embraces us in our sin, in our shame, in our suffering, because he has borne our sin and our shame and our suffering for us on the cross, and he even now bears it with us. I want to put a verse on the screen from 1 John. And and as I do that, I want to just ask you to read it in your your mind and in your heart as I read it, to to reread it just in meditation as we close, to pray these words from 1 John chapter 1. I think the slide guy has fallen asleep on us, huh? I'm going to read it to you. It says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can be confident of your presence, of your love for us in any and every circumstance, but especially in those very moments, Father, when we feel as if you are absent, when we doubt the most your love toward us. Father, thank you that through Jesus, you bring us hope, you give us redemption, you demonstrate us to us, your love. Thank you, Father. And I would pray that our hearts in response now could be glad, could be prayerful, could be praise-filled. And even if those responses are lamentations, that we would come to you knowing that you receive us and embrace us in hardship and pain and suffering. Father, minister to us now by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.